This talk was recorded by Canvas Outreach Minneapolis, the College Ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church, as a part of the 2021 Summer Training Project. For more information on Summer Training Project or Canvas Outreach Minneapolis, visit cominneapolis.org. Guess where I'm going to start? What do you think is more important? Uh, expressing the gospel and biblical truths or being kind and caring to one another to show Christ's love. Take 30 seconds, think to yourself, ready to go. Sweet. In case you couldn't guess from uh, the VeggieTales movie, P.S. I love VeggieTales. I think it's so funny. I think the whole, like, him stuck, stuck, stuck upside down going, Oh, I feel really, feel like a blunder with my head down under, like, it's hilarious. Anyways, I'm going to talk about mercy ministry, and what is that? That's a huge thing. We'll get there. For now, last Wednesday, last missional training talk, you're all super sad, right? Who's cheering? Guys. I'm just kidding. Uh, quick overview. We talked about um, the gain of missional, a missional lifestyle from uh, Mr. Billy, right? The cost of a missional lifestyle from Liz how to identify and engage a culture from, not Dan, give me a second. Somebody help me? Zach, thanks. I think you said over here first, I just didn't hear you. Zach and Zach again talked to, again about how to engage that culture then with their identity and how we can really dive into that. And we got a lot of practicals, uh, sweet, with the diagram talk, with uh, relational ministry, with hos hospitality ministry. Now this is kind of the last wrap up of practicals how does this look? How do we engage this culture? How do we live a missional lifestyle with mercy ministry? So again, what is mercy ministry? It means I can have this nice little definition. Uh, to meet the needs of those around you, whether they believe in the gospel or not, with such care and self-forgetfulness, they need to hear the gospel to make sense of your life because it's so abnormal. And so for those note-takers, I'll give you guys a few seconds because I know I would be scrambling. Sweet. So there's two pretty distinct examples of uh, mercy ministry that I thought of in my life when I was putting this talk together. I have a positive and negative. The positive was my, not, my, not even my youth pastor, a youth pastor in my hometown, Wilma, Minnesota. Every Friday night, he would set up a uh, fifth quarter, which I'm sure is a pretty common thing in most hometowns. They basically, he himself, and honestly, I don't even think he had help at this point. He would just set up uh, the, all the youth rooms in our church. He would go out and buy tons of snacks, tons of, bring tons of games, and he just spend every Friday night that he had with the high school students. And I wouldn't say that's, that's directly mercy ministry until he chose again and again and again to spend time with me, somebody that needed somebody in my life to, to love on me, to care for me, and to show me that being loved is from God and that he was just such a uh, direct reflection of God's love for me that I didn't understand for a long time. Uh, and then the negative point of view of this mercy ministry is for a long time I've grown up thinking and listening and being told that, you know, homelessness isn't something you should address, isn't something you should talk about, acknowledge. But if you see a homeless person on the street, they did it to themselves, they made bad decisions, and if you give them food, money, X, Y, Z, whatever, other billion things, they're going to waste it, they're going to make you sick, like, just negative talk. But we're going to read today from Luke Again, in case you couldn't guess, 
the Good Samaritan parable. Again, that's what the VeggieTales thing came from. I'm actually going to my teenager partner, Holly, right there, read it loud and proud so you don't have to listen to my voice the whole time. Oh, it's Luke 10, 25-37, in case you wanted to flip there. Sorry. Oh, it's also up there. Thank you. Um, how does this tie in? I'm sure some of you guys are making the connections already, but we're going to be talking about the one who had mercy. Again, that, that last uh, 36 and 37, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. He just said to him, go and do likewise. Uh, Jesus, Jesus prioritizes the mercy shown from the Samaritan to the Jew. And today we're going to break that down. I think honestly give a lot of the reasoning and a lot of the motivation. Well, I'll tell you on the next slide, the motivation, all that good stuff. But talk about why. Why do we care? Why do we want this to happen? So if you want to flip to the next slide, we got the whole roadmap. Motivate, or we're going to talk about the mandate. Why do we care? Says who, kind of, what is this about? Of the magnitude, to what degree do we actually follow this out? Uh, the motivation, why do we follow this? And then the method, how do we do this? So, give me a second here to flip. The mandate. Why do we care? What are these uh, big laws the letter is quoting? As you can see right here, I got Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 18.19. These are the two direct uh, quotes that when Jesus says, what do you say to laws? How do you summarize it? Basically, he's asking the lawyer, the lawmaker, the law guy, tell me the laws. And he's not going to sit here, break out Leviticus, and go, all right, number one, you know, to summarize it, and we've summarized it. This is the big classic, the way that it was done. So 18, or 6.5 says, as you can read, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And then 18.19 reads, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so this whole concept does come from the Bible, does come from the law, comes from ancient, ancient law, way at the beginning. I'm going to break it down just a little bit. So love God. We are designed to be in communion, communion in relationship with God. It'd be cruel for him to push us anywhere else. He knows he is the best thing for us. He's the most satisfactory, complete, loving thing for us. And for him to say, I want you to go, Ethan, I want you to go pursue football, he knows I'm going to be heartbroken. I think they're not very good. <laughs> he knows I'm going to be distraught. He says, Ethan, pursue relationships, pursue your family, pursue money, pursue whatever else. He knows I'm going to end up sad and just empty. It's the broken cistern passage that we talked about a couple times. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, listen more. I'm just kidding. But it'd be unloving for God to push us anywhere else. Uh, to be in love with something means that you talk about it. Right before this passage, Jesus just got done sending the 72 out. Oh, sorry. Very good. You can go back to... Uh, just got done sending the 72 out. They went out, they proclaimed the good news, they said, the kingdom is coming, believe. And they came back to God and they said, this is awesome, you know, demons proclaimed, or demons exited in your name, and we cast them all out. And it's this whole thing of him teaching them, like, don't be proud of yourself, be proud of me, yada, yada, yada. But they were passionate, they were excited, they talked about it. Which then leads to, Jesus calls, calls us to love with our whole heart, our whole soul, our whole strength, and our whole mind. Who does that? Who truly has this belief, that passion, that when God is all that you, God is the thing you want the most, you're never, you're never left wanting because you always have what you want the most. That's not our hearts. That's not our soul. That's not where we're at. We're broken people who are always wanting, are always broken. So then, what about our neighbor? How do we do that? 
uh, we, means that I talked about meeting the needs of your neighbor with all, the with all the force, joy, and speed as your own. If it says love your neighbor as yourself, you want to be met. When you're in need, you want somebody to come help you. Why do we not reciprocate that? It makes sense. If I want this to be done for me, I, want this, I, want, I should want to do this for others. You put your happiness inside their happiness. What makes them happy is what makes you happy. Again, if we're totally found in our love of God, we've, we've found our satisfaction. We don't need to find it anywhere else. We can go help others find it. And again, this all makes sense. You want to flip? Oh, sweet, you're already there. It makes sense to love God this much. It makes sense to love your neighbor this much. If this is where we are at, if this is the passion that we had for the gospel, for God our Father, if this is what we believe the passion he had for us was, but we're not there. We don't have that. Um, one person that I really look up to and admire is, we talked about him a little bit three weeks ago? I have no idea. During Mission Week is William Borden. He's that missionary that died at 25, was a millionaire. You can flip there. I got uh, this little quote from his autobiography. Or not auto, he was dead. His biography, sorry. <laughs> uh, William died away, when William died, a wave of sorrow went around the world. Borden not only gave away his wealth, but himself, and so joyous and natural that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice. And then again, his gravestone quote I love. That's this bottom one. That apart from Christ, there's no explanation for such a life. What a concept that if you looked at somebody and you were like, man, your life doesn't make sense. You truly are living in a way that just baffles my mind. What better compliment is there? than to be told that unless, you have a, unless your God is real, you're an idiot. Wow. Sorry. I, just, I love William Borden, just the concept that he was so rich, had so much to live for, and yet died in a way that we admire and look up to his love for God. So what did he, what did he understand that we didn't? Because clearly there was something in his life that got, made him do this. And I think his love for God and his understanding of God's love for him filled him up in such a way that how could he not share it? He had this overflow of, I need to show mercy to people. I need to show not just the message, but the mercy of the gospel. We're going to talk a little bit about the differences between those two as we progress. But man, what a life of William Borden. little side note, but he's just so cool in the fact that he can commit himself in such a way that provides more of an earthly model than just Jesus, because, you know, can't replicate that. So why not try William, huh? But we're going to talk about the magnitude. How, to what degree is God really calling us to in this lifestyle, right? We're going to talk about the who, the when, and the how much. Who does God call us to be a neighbor to? When does he call us to be a neighbor? And how, to how, what degree does he call us to be a neighbor? If you have a second here. Oh, or not. No, I'm just kidding. You can go. The who. Uh, it's very typical. We want to help people like us, right? Uh, when I was saved, a big part of my conversion, not con well, conversion story, what's the word? Testimony. Thanks for help. Um, is when I was in eighth grade, I went to Camp Shamanah. I f had a big spiritual camp high, fell in love with uh, the idea of the Lord, found, got baptized, and all this stuff. And so like, I have a huge love and adoration for camp. So after my freshman year of college, I said, all right, I'm going to go be a camp counselor. Because that's where I found God. That's where I fell in love with God. That's where I want to show others the same thing. And that's good. That's like not a bad thing by any means. You should want to do things like that. And it's not bad 
to reach out to people similar to yourself. A lot of you, lot of you guys, well, not a lot, but a lot, some of you guys might be thinking about going on staff. I know for myself, a big thought process is, man, I found, I refound my love for God in college due to staff. Maybe I, maybe I want to do that. Maybe I want to help college students who are lost in the same way I was when I got to college, and I want to show them the same love that Nate, Reed, so many other guys have shown me. Again, not a bad thing, but it's really easy to see your neighbor when your neighbor's yourself. It's much harder to see your neighbor as somebody totally foreign, totally different. Uh, in this parable, Jesus shows two men with great division, some of the most radical racial barriers there are in this time frame. You have the Jew on one side and the Samaritan on the other side, where both sides sees the other as the oppressor. Both sides sees the other as dominating and cruel and vicious to the other. And yet Jesus still brings them together in the story, saying, don't you dare limit the who. You can't. If I don't, when I tell the story of the Jew and Samaritan, how we, what excuse can you make to limit the who? That your neighbor is anybody in need. Um, then, what about the when? I, get, I bet you guys can guess where this is going. It's going to continually be, you can't limit it. But when can you limit, or how, when can you limit the when? You can't. The Samaritan stops when it's not just inconvenient, but could cost his life. Um, he breaks all the social norm where it's not just, not just the Jew Samaritan, but he's thinking in this time frame, right, we have such a social construct of collective society, not just individualistic. And so when the Samaritan passes by the Jew and sees him on the road, he's not just thinking, oh, this is an individual. I'm thinking, what's he like? What is his uh, personality? How does he care for people? He's thinking, no, this is a Jew. They're all the same. They all have the same beliefs. They all hate me. I hate all of them. There's no individualistic. There's all just collective. Their whole social construct says, I don't help him. And yet he does when it's the most life-changing, mind-blowing thing for him to do that. Uh, I also wrote a lot about Jonathan Edwards. Fun fact, uh, he was named after Jonathan Sweeney. He's a preacher from the 1700s. I'm just kidding. But preacher from the 1700s. And he wrote a little pamphlet called The Duty of Charity, where he's basically writing to his congregation about all the ex- not, well, excuses that they're using to not give to charity. Two of the big ones are, I can only help those who are truly poor, and I like helping people, but not when they do it to themselves, when they destroy themselves. And I think his rebuttals are fantastic. One of the things he says, we don't help others when we're, when the, we don't only help when they're truly desolate. When you're down in the dumps at your lowest of lows, you don't say, wait, don't help me yet. I got a ways to fall still. I'm not a rock bottom. Hold on. Hold on. Okay, now you can help me. No, that's the second you slip off that ledge, you're crying for help. Unless you're me and then you do do that because it's just bad habits of not asking for help and thinking I can do it all by myself. But typically, in a healthy person, you ask for help early. You want help. You want your friends, your neighbors, God to help you on the way down in any struggle. And then... I don't help those who did it to themselves. Man, if Christ had that mentality, if he, essentially, he says, if I don't, help, I don't help those who do it to themselves. Right? It's the same thing as, I'm only going to help those who deserve it. I'm only going to help those that didn't fall due, due to their own doing, that something else did it to them, so they still deserve to be picked back up. If Christ had that mentality, if I'm only going to save the ones that deserve it, he's not coming. Save, save the trip. Stay there. On the next slide, I've got another quote from Jonathan Edwards, 
Or no, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. He came despite everything we fought against. And then a little shout out to George's tattoo verse on his forearm. So cool. Just look at it. Ask him to look at it later. Probably show you his whole arm. Huge. He wrote, or Paul, sorry. But God showed, showed this. Did I mess that up on here? Oh, no. Good. God showed his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How can we limit the when, when Christ came at such a cost to himself and for no reason to people like us? I said I was going to cry. Do we need to wait for a second? No? Cool. So then how much? Right? That's the last thing. If we can't limit who, we can't limit when, can we limit how much at least? That's what the lawmaker is saying when he, when he tries to justify himself. He says, who is my neighbor? He's looking for any way he can say, well, not, not that much, not that guy, not that thing. You don't, again. Shocker, right? But he's, the Jews on what they call the pass of blood, right? Traveling between two towns, they call it the trail of blood, the pass of blood, because it's so common for robbers to stop and just beat the people and to steal. And if you're watching the VeggieTales thing earlier, to stay, steal a sock and shoe and milk money, right? Tragic. Poor Larry the Cucumber. <laughs> but the Jew not only, not only stops when it's inconvenient, when it breaks social barriers, but when it could cost him his life. He doesn't know what's going to be the outcome of this. He stops. The Jew could be part of the, part of the trap. He could intentionally be there to trap the Samaritan to, to stop so they can mug him, so they can beat him up, so they can rob him. He stops anyways despite everything. And then he says to the innkeeper, I'll pay you back no matter the cost. Again, what a bold statement in prayer, no matter the cost. Uh, I think of, I mentioned Stephen a few weeks ago after Liz's talk, my coworker, and We've been, we just talked about it once in a while, and he told me the other day that he's been praying for his daughter to just find Christ again, and he said, I'm getting to the point where I'm starting to pray whatever the cost, and it scares me. Because we can't fathom the earthly cost sometimes, but the heavenly reward is always so good and so worth it. It just takes a lot <laughs> to get there sometimes, and man, it can be painful and emotional. And then a big thing is people say, well, you know, I would love to give, but I can't afford to give. And again, this is part of what Jonathan Edwards says, and he says, what that really means is I can't afford to give without changing my life a little bit. I can't afford to give without hurting my circumstances, without living in the house I really want, without living, without going out to Taco Bell every night with the guys. That might be only applicable to some people, sorry. <laughs> without whatever you, whatever you want, name it. There's so many little things, even as college students, that we're already saying, I need to have this someday. I need to ha- live here. I need to do this. I need to have the right dog. And I'm getting off into my own dream world of <laughs> best-case scenarios. But there's such a I need to have these things. And when we say that, we say, I can't afford to, I can't afford to give without it hurting me. Jesus says, yes, let it hurt you. I love when you depend on me. I love when you're hurting to a point where you need me. I wrote uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10 from Paul. He wrote, my grace is sufficient for you. Well, this is God in this quote. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Then Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. 
That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardship, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul knows that giving himself away in such a radical, gospel, neighborly love, that God feels that he loves that. He fills it up. He wants to help you do that. He wants to supply you the energy, the motivation, the means to do this. And I wasn't here for the heaven talk, but I assume he talked a little bit about I think he did, we talked about it, about the idea that our, earths are f- our earthly lives are so finite, so short, that whatever the sacrifice is, is minuscule compared to the eternity of grace, the eternal weight of glory. What verse is that? Colossians 4 or something? Anybody have any, that off the top of their head? Eh, it doesn't matter. The eternal weight of glory, wherever that is. It's a fantastic verse. But nothing is comparable to the eternal weight of heaven and the goodness of that is compared to that. So ultimately, we can't limit the who, the what, the when, the how much, because Jesus didn't limit any of that when he came to us. So then, what's the motivation? How do we get ourselves to actually do this? What's the idea? What's the consta- concept of, like, how do we get this done, right? When it comes to motivation, then we've got two different concepts. You have the morality, and you have the response. Um, when you talk about morality, I think a lot of anybody who's studied this passage before, you can flip it, sorry. Anybody who's studied the passage, heard it preached, heard it talked about, whatever, Sunday school, has heard about the idea that Jesus very intentionally put moral, moral people in this story. The Levite, the priest, their job was to take care of people that are beaten and bruised and battered. And yet they don't. Why not? They walked right past this guy. Because their limits and the reason they were doing it was out of guilt, shame, and duty. Not because they loved, not because it was overflowing from love, because they felt like they had to. And when you have to, and when that runs up to your own danger, they don't work together. I'll have another quote later that actually, oh, it just came right there. When you run into the limits of your morality, your morality runs out. They don't, it doesn't keep going, it doesn't keep extending. And there's a cool thing about this, because like if I said, all right, talk done, be better, we would for a little bit. We are moral people to an extent. We are made with innate things that want to do God's will. So we will help to a certain extent. We will help the poor. We would help each other especially because we care about each other. But again, when that runs into their limits of, whoa, I'll help, but not if it hurts me. That's where your morality is always going to run short and never going to be enough. Which then goes into uh, the response. But before we can really talk about response, we have to talk about who are we in this story. You can flip. Because for a long time growing up, I've always heard it and always understood it as copy the Samaritan, the Samaritan is who you are, you need to be the Samaritan. What, and I was always like, man, I can't do that. I'm not going to stop in the trail of blood, or the pass of blood, whatever it's called. I'm not going to give up my horse. I'm not going to let him ride in the town and say, whatever it takes to heal this man, I will pay it. I can't do that. That's the limits. We can't, we have limits. It's only when I realized, well, I realized through a whole sermon by Tim Keller called, no, Neighbors. I said friends. Neighbors. Thank you, guys. Call Neighbors. I can put in the group chat later. So good. Almost all of what I'm saying, basically just what Tim Keller said with like a little twist, not not even, barely even a twist. Mostly just what he said directly. But when he said, we're not the 
Samaritan, we are the Jew. We are the one in the road that was going home, trying to find our way back to our Heavenly Father, and we got beaten, battered, and bruised, and left for dead with no chance of getting up, no chance of getting there. And it took somebody that we hated, that we rejected, that we would not let help us to say, no, I'm going to help you. I'm coming off of my horse. I'm putting you in my spot where, where I belong. And whatever it takes for you to get home, I'm going to pay that cost. It took for Christ to w- not just know that it was going to be tough as a Samaritan, not just know that it was going to be costly, but know that he was going to die in a way that was just... Sorry, hold on a second. Our motivation can't come from a, a code, from an ethics, from a morality, because it falls short so frequently. Only when... You can flip short, sorry. We respond out of being loved first, from a love that we can't fathom, that you can't be a neighbor till you get a neighbor. You can't understand how to love until you understand that you are being loved so intensely that that's the best Samaritan picked you up off the road. When you're Larry the Cucumber, the little junior asparagus ran up, walks up by, even though he's a kettle and you're a shoe, (laughs) that knowing he's going to die saved you anyways. And it's only when you get to that point can you say, you know what? Screw politics, screw race, screw religion, screw ethics, screw social class, screw gender, screw age. Sorry, I probably should be saying screw this much. Sorry, Alyssa. (laughs) Even the Enneagram, who cares? No matter what is separating, whatever you're using to divide yourself from people, you can look at all that and say, there is so much more of a barrier between my Samaritan and me. Why would I put a barrier between somebody else? My Samaritan had no reason to stop for me. A Jew who was dying on the road, and yet he did. And we're all in the same boat where, at this point, how could we not? How can we put limits when Jesus so boldly said, I won't dare put a single limit on why I'm stopping for you? Which then leads into how we practice this. How do we actually get this done? What's this look like? Three methods, right? You've got to rename yourself, reweave the message and the mercy, and then prioritize your relationship with your neighbor, with your Samaritan. Give you a second again. Sorry. Probably good. Then I can stop just about being ready to tear up. So I'll re-neighbor yourself. Notice that when the Levite and the priest walked past, it said that they... Sorry. They didn't notice. They saw him and they kept walking. The Samaritan saw him and had compassion. He thought about him. He took the time to actually sit there and think, this is a person that God loves and God would stop for. Jesus would die for. So the two big things are don't just be a geographical neighbor. Uh, In Minneapolis, there's so much, S-I-U-E people. In Minneapolis, there's so much poverty. I think the stat was like, there's 20% 20 of uh, children under 18 are below the poverty line right now, which ended up being like, oh, sorry, this is the nation, not Minneapolis. So SIUE, this helps for you. 18%, er, 20%, 13 million children are living below this poverty line where they're struggling to eat every day. They're struggling for so many means. 
we have such a need in Minneapolis. We have such a need on this project for people that are struggling to f pay their rent. It's done. Wow, I just checked my watch. It's due what, Seth? This week? Next week? Soon? Rent's due soon? I don't know. He doesn't know. Due Friday. <laughs> a lot of people are scrambling. A lot of people are going to have to pay out of pocket for their rent. If you have overage, stop buying yourself meals. Sorry, I'm a hypocrite. I do buy myself a lot of meals in my overage. So don't feel bad because I'm in the same boat. <laughs> but don't just be a geographical neighbor. Think about them. Contact. Put yourself in situations where you have to think about the people in need and not just the people that you associate with, people that you naturally float around. Uh, reweave. The message, here is Christ and mercy. I'm going to love you no matter what you believe. We talked about this a few long time ago in one of the uh, life trainings where they had the railroad tracks, right? I probably should have just put that up there, but I don't have it, sorry. Where they had orthodoxy, so like right will, right belief, right knowledge, with just compassion. And so frequently, this is a, oh, this is a little spicy quote, sorry, but Tim Keller said, society says, when Jesus says, be fearless proclaimers of the gospel, conservatives feel good and liberals get nervous. But when Jesus says, I want to radically show mercy and be a neighbor for the good of the poor and love them despite anything that's going on, conservatives get nervous and liberals get excited. But the backwards thing is, is that the times, <laughs> don't make fun of me, Hallie. Haley, sorry. Is that when Christianity has flourished the most is when both parties have put aside the differences, come together, and been united in both railroad tracks of caring equally for the body and for the mind, saying, I'm going to show you the gospel. I'm going to love you despite whatever you say about the gospel. Passionately to my own cost. Um, there was a cool little side quote from an emperor back in the day that said something, again, I didn't have this up here, I should have, said something to the effect of like, um, Christianity is flourishing despite their intense persecution because they not only care for their own sick, their own elderly, elderly and widows, but they care for the Greek and the Roman and everybody else out there that to their burden, to putting themselves on the street, they're passionately caring for people around them to such a cost that they are winning over Christians left and right for their cause. Which I just think is so mind-boggling. I can't do that. Not by myself. That's a morality thing. I can't. We can't. Uh, one thing some of the football guys have talked about we're really excited for, this is just kind of a little bit of a practical, we're really excited uh, this fall to go back to Northwestern. There's two different uh, clubs, I guess you could say. Uh, the BSU, the Black Student Union and Force, which is, again, just basically the minorities of the school, the minority people groups that are trying to just raise awareness and just be together. And uh, we've got a teammate that I've been trying to talk to a lot recently, and he's telling me that, he's like, man, I just feel sad because I try so hard to get our teammates here, and nobody shows up. And we're trying to just get a place where people can come together and just love each other, and nobody wants to. That there's too much, oh, the force thinks this politically, force pushes this agenda. I can't go associate myself with them. Why not? Love them. Which again, I don't know, ask us how it's going in a month, because maybe it'll be really bad. But that's the goal, at least, is to get in there and help that a little bit. 
And then lastly, you prioritize your relationship with God, with your Samaritan, with the one that stopped for you. Spiritual amnesia is very real. I don't know how much that term has been thrown around before for you, but uh, Rito, sorry, read you, like, <laughs> says that so constantly in our D group. Noah and George can attest to that. Jake could, too, if he was here, but rip Jake COVID. Um, spiritual amnesia is serious, and you are going to continually forget the truth and promises that God promises you over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Keep reminding yourselves. Keep digging. Keep reminding that God loved you, that that Samaritan stopped for you. Um, you can't pour out unless you're being poured into. I feel like that's the whole theme of all of what we're doing this summer is the discipleship, is the people, people pouring into each other, down, 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 into you're feeling filled up, you're feeling like you can pour out. And so, again, this all comes from being loved, being loved and understanding how loved you are, which leads to you can't care for others without the motivation, without the direct uh, compassion of I am being loved so passionately, so fervently that I have to pour out. I have too much love from my neighbors, from my father, that I have to give this to others. So then some practical ideas. We're college students. I know if somebody just told me all this stuff and said, all right, get out of here, I would say, okay, cool. I don't know what to do. Uh, volunteer. We're college students. Time is our biggest asset, our biggest resource. Doesn't feel that way a lot of time. Granted, it does not. <laughs> I know. But definitely, we have definitely more about than money, right? And so volunteer your time. Uh, there are some links that obviously you can't click, but I can send that later uh, to the Maria Santic Center, or sorry, yeah, Sandvik, Sandvik, uh, the Jericho Road Missionaries, and then homelessness. Again, Minneapolis, huge. Minneapolis is a cold town between October to May. <laughs> Have a care package in your car. Have some hats, some gloves, some mittens, same thing. Hand warmers, granola bars, non-perishable food items, and just be ready to give. It will cost you 10 bucks. And yeah, that might take not going to Taco Bell one night. I know Kayla would be so heartbroken. <laughs> Kidding, she hates Taco Bell. That's a pretty big disagreement point. But it might take not going out once or twice. It may take sacrificing who knows what. Two coffee, coffees a week. I don't know how, people, how often you get coffee. It'll take sacrifice. That's good. We're showing that we care more about loving God's creation and God's, our neighbors, than we care about our Taco Bell, our coffee, our name your XYZ thing. And then lastly, just take time to get to know some people. I think one of the things I look back on most fondly was my time with Rocky, with the passion that he cared for me despite me being a very obnoxious, arrogant 14-year-old <laughs> who thought I was very cool and I very much was not. But despite that, he just took the time to care for me, get to know me, and really love me passionately. That as a 21-year-old now, I'm looking back and I still admire and appreciate so much. Take the time. We have so much surplus of time that what is, what is a t an hour nap or a three-hour nap in some people's case? Take the time, get to know somebody, love on them passionately. So I'm finally just in summary a little bit. I don't know why I did that. Like it was supposed to flip the slide when I did it. I thought it'd be cool if it worked. It didn't. We love God and our neighbor to honor God. It makes sense to do this. We don't, but we should, at least to an extent, to what we can manage. And what we can't manage, we rely on Christ to fill that. Because we can't limit anything 
because Christ didn't limit us. He didn't limit his coming to us. He didn't limit anything when he as a Samaritan reached down to us. Motivation comes through love, that we're only going to help our neighbors, we're only going to help each other when we understand that we were helped first by our Samaritan. And then finally, this is all through crockpot stuff. None of this is microwave. Shout out Jeremiah Hope. <laughs> but it's all going to be a long-lasting, very tedious fix that takes a lot of intentionality, a lot of care, just a lot of time. So that's all I got. Thank you for listening to this message from the 2021 Summer Training Project hosted by Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the College Ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church. Please feel free to share this message with others, but please don't charge, edit, or alter the content in any way without the written permission of Campus Outreach Minneapolis.